Our heart's desire is to behold the face of Jesus. So God, we pray that in the midst of opening your word, that we would see him and him alone. We would know him and all that he's done and embrace him and all he is. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Joshua and chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6, please. Joshua chapter 6, verse 1, hear the word of God. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually, and the armed men were walking before them. And the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets... Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. 
So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the, fall, the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And they devoted, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute in her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Well-known passage in the Bible. Uh, the children sing the little song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. The danger for us is that we'll relegate this great event to the children, and to a children's story, and to a children's class. Not that the children shouldn't hear it, they certainly should, but it shouldn't mean to us that it's at all childish, because not only did God do something great and awesome here, which epitomizes the whole book of Joshua and its very theme, but I think also provides for us a great picture, a picture in two senses, a picture in the one sense of what Jesus has done for us, and secondly, a picture for us in the life that we live. I learned in the first service, I'm not going to get through both of those today. I can't go any farther with you than I did with them, because then it gets you all messed up. Uh, so you're fortunate that I won't go an extra 15 minutes. But I do want us to see not only the great and awesome work that this is for the people of Joshua's day and how it fulfilled the task of this book in the Old Testament, at least by fulfilling its theme, but also how it is that it points us to Christ and its work. The scene is well known. I mean, here's this scene set. The Israelites have left Egypt, obviously, gone through the wilderness time. All the people in the days of Moses, including Moses himself, has, have died, those who left Egypt. And now this new generation is about to enter the land. They've crossed over the Jordan uh, in a miraculous kind of way. And here now they are. They've made spiritual preparation to enter the land. Remember last Sunday we talked about the fact that all the men at this point were circumcised, saying, yes, we will be people who identify with the covenant of God. We will be people who um, identify with the faith of our father Abraham. And so they identified with the promises of God, this land then being the promise of God to them. They celebrated the Passover. And they said, we know why we're not being judged. We're not being judged because God in his grace has taken another for us, another on our behalf. They remembered back in the days of Egypt when he did just that. And the first Passover, when judgment came against everybody, really, they were spared because one had already been taken in their place. And so they know now they can go into this land as God's agents, if you will, of judgment. 
and be spared themselves because of the grace of God. But, but here they are. Uh, Joshua had met the commander of the army of the Lord. Uh, he knew that every place he put his foot was not only the, to be for Israel, but it was also holy ground because God was with them. But how would they take the city? It was fortified. The scripture said it was all shut up in and out. That is, you couldn't get in and you couldn't get out. And so there it was. How would they get in? And not only that, how would Rahab get out? I mean, you remember Rahab. Uh, she was the prostitute who feared God. She had heard the, the stories of what God had done and she feared him. So when the spies were sent, she met them and she hid them as an act of faith really on her part. It was risky for her to do that. But as an act of faith in God on her part, she hid them and thus asked to be spared and would be spared, they promised. But first they'd have to get in. First they'd have to free her. And how would that take place? So with this city, this fortified city, all shut up, people couldn't get in, people couldn't get out. How in would the Israelites get in and claim their inheritance from God? And how would Rahab, in a sense, be free? Well, God had a plan. Good thing. The military might of Israel was probably not sufficient to get in. So God had a plan. But as I mentioned a little while ago, it was a rather strange plan. The plan was this, that there'd be some armed men and then they would begin to walk around the fortress. It was not a very big city, not a very big fortress. And so it's quite likely that even as they went and all the people followed, that they would really make a circle around it as they would walk. So these armed men would go first, and then seven priests, each carrying a big trumpet. And these trumpets would blast continually as they walked. Then after the seven priests with the seven trumpets would be this box, the Ark of the Covenant, this box which represented the, the, the presence of God, it represented the power of God, it represented the very promises of God that he had for them. This box was there, the Ark of the Covenant, and it would go around after these priests. And then after the priests, there would be this rear guard of everybody else. And they would walk around... Trumpets blasting, but the people silent once a day for six days. And you wonder, well, how is that going to help knock down these walls? Uh, and then on the seventh day, they would walk around the city seven times. And you go, okay, let's go. Rahab's probably thinking, any plan B, gentlemen? Um, this is great, but remember, you're going to get me out of here. Um, so they walked around seven times, and then the big event came. The trumpets would blast one more time, and all the people would shout. And when they did, the walls fell flat. They didn't fall in. They didn't fall out. They fell flat. And therefore, since they were surrounding the city, then the army people would just go straight from every angle in and bring destruction upon the city. And you may say, well, how did that really happen? I mean, was it because the shout and the trumpets were so great that it caused this huge vibration? And just like an opera singer can break a glass, then all the walls collapsed. I don't know. It could be noisy, I suppose, all those people making a big... Or maybe not, but obviously it's of no great importance to us here because it's not in the passage. This being a miracle of the wisdom and the power of God in order to fulfill his promises to his people. And they went in and destroyed everything, though they took the precious metals and they used them later. Uh, we'll see in the context of life in the tabernacle and the temple. 
I talked last Sunday about the justice that was taking place here. Again, I, I won't rehearse that. In fact, I, I talked about it again on Wednesday night. In fact, please forgive this little aside. But last on Wednesday evening, I talked about the ethic and the justice of destroying everything in Jericho. I talked about holy war in the context of present-day Israel and the church on Wednesday. So you can get that on the Internet. And I also, uh, because a lot of people ask me questions about that, uh, I rewrote all my notes, and so they all be up there too, whenever that happens. I don't know how that happens. People ask me, how do these things get on the Internet? I have no clue. I don't even know what that means. Okay? I just know that people tell me that I'm in cyberspace. So, and how I got there, I don't know any of that. But that should happen if the people who make that happen make it happen. So look for that. Uh, and if you can't find any of that stuff, talk to Joyce. Now, um, uh, but we know that this was justice on the city of Jericho. It was justice on the city of Jericho because remember in the promises made to Abraham, God says you can't have the land now, but in 400 years you will have the land because then the fullness of the iniquity of the Amorites will be complete. That is, at the time of Abraham, it wasn't yet complete. They didn't yet deserve this kind of judgment, but he said a day will come when they will deserve that because they will be completely against God, save this one Rahab. And God saved him out of the midst of all that. And so there they were in this city, and the scripture said the city was shut up, meaning that they didn't want to have anything at all to do with God. It's a little passage in Deuteronomy, in chapter 20, where God instructs Moses, saying, if you come up to a city that's meant for destruction, and they open their gates, and they offer peace, and they let you in, grant them peace. But clearly Jericho was not in this situation. Though they had heard about what God had done at the Red Sea, though they had heard about what God had done to various kings in coming to Jericho, perhaps they had heard what happened at the Jordan River, still they were unable, unwilling to let him in and to let the people in. And so they were there, there they were shut up against God. And God then would judge and everything would be destroyed. There's a sense in which, as we've said, that's a look at the judgment that's to come. A day will come, a moment in time in history will come when judgment will take place, ready or not. Right? And this moment in Jericho is a picture of that. Therefore all who shut God out, will be destroyed, will be judged, okay? That's why this isn't just a kid thing. It's a very solemn, very solemn event. But Rahab would be saved. It's an interesting thing, you know. Uh, you might remember uh, when the spies went in and told Rahab that she would be saved, they said, put this little scarlet cord out your window. It's not going to do much good now, Right? Because the walls are gone. And you may wonder, how, how would they know? So Joshua sent the spies, the particular spies, to go get Rahab. And you think, well, how would they know, really, that's, that's really Rahab? And, and I think this, she's probably the only one who is happy to see them. <laughs> you know? And nobody else would be particularly happy to see them. 
But she would be happy to see them. But just a little glimpse of something. How will you know who the people of God are when Jesus returns? They're going to be the ones who are going to be happy to see him. For the others, it will mean judgment. For those who belong to him, it will mean salvation. That's the difference. So what are we to make of this? What are we to make of, the, of this account of all of this? Excuse me. I don't know about you, but it's warm up here. Um, we could just simply stop by saying it shows that God is awesome. We could just simply stop by saying it shows that God is awesome, that he's powerful, that he's wise, that he's faithful to his promises. He says, you'll get the land, they got the land. It didn't look like they would be able to get the land because it was all shut up. But, but God, in a miraculous way, got them this particular piece of property, this particular fortress. And we could stop there and say that God is awesome and this fulfills the purpose for which Joshua was put in writing. It fulfills it in the sense that it leads us to Joshua's conclusion. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. In other words... God is faithful. Why wouldn't you serve him? God is faithful to all of his promises. Therefore, why wouldn't you yield to him? God is faithful to his promises. Therefore, serve him. And I think if we just looked at this and and believed it and said, yes, this is what God does. This is the wisdom and power of God. We would end up with the conclusion, of course, yes, we'll serve him. But I want us to see this. I want us to see in this the very work of Christ. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize this event, but it's always amazing to me that, that God seems to be able in the Old Testament to create all of his own illustrations. If you're a teacher, as a preacher, and as a teacher, I know that, that illustrations sometimes that really fit are the hardest thing to come up with. And I just admire God. He just makes them up as he goes along. He says, I want you to look at this, this event. And if you think about it long enough, you'll see something in it. Again, not to take it to where it wasn't meant to go, but you'll see something here, I think, in our lives and the work of Christ that will put a picture in our minds and help us tremendously. Not only that, I think it will put into our minds uh, not just what Christ did at the cross to save us, but it will also give us a picture of our life today. That will probably have to be next week, but I want to get at this first one about the work of Christ. Derek Thomas, not the ex-Kansas City chief, Uh, but a theologian who teaches at Reformed Seminary, wrote this. He said, The fall of Jericho is an evidence of that great principle that comes to its fulfillment in the great instrument that God has used to destroy everything that stands in his way. So he says, I want you to look at this incident, this event that took place in Jericho. He says, because it's evidence of the great principle that comes to its fulfillment in the great instrument that God uses to destroy everything that stands in his way. So the question is, what, does, what instrument does God use to destroy everything that comes in his way? And his answer is this, the cross of Christ. He says, what you have here in cameo and miniature is an example of what God does again and again in the history of redemption. He plans to build his kingdom by ways that human wisdom that to human wisdom is foolishness. But the wisdom of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And here is shown for a moment that fundamental principle. That is, the fundamental principle is that God often looks foolish to us when his wisdom and power is being manifested. 
And we need to understand that and live in the midst of all of that. Take a picture of this city. Okay, as I said a minute ago, it's completely shut up against God. Nobody getting in, nobody getting out. It's a great fortress, impossible really to penetrate. And within it is a group of people who do not want God to be there. They don't want God in there. They've shut the gates. Even though the Ark of the Covenant is right outside their door, the very representation of the presence of God is right outside their door, they don't want that inside. They don't want the power of God to be manifested. They don't want the promises of God to be revealed in their midst. They want to keep that out. They want to keep the people of God outside as well because the people of God could testify to the greatness of God. And so here they are, shut up, completely estranged, if you will, from God. And, and, and there's nothing that anybody can really do about that. The Israelites can't do anything about that particularly. Uh, they're not strong enough to break down the wall. The people on the inside aren't strong enough to break down those walls. Poor little Rahab, she's in there. She can't even get out. All right? But everybody in there, save for her, wants to keep God out. Isn't that a picture of our lives? At least before Christ invades, before walls come down. See, that's the very picture of human beings. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, not very far into the Bible, not much history has taken place by that point. The scripture says of us that the thoughts and inclinations of human beings was evil continuously. That's the very position we find ourselves in. The prophet Jeremiah describes us like this. He says, He says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can trust it? Who can cure it? Who can know it? Jesus comes on the scene. And he says, men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. He goes on to say, if you sin, that is, if at any point in your time you've turned away from God, if you sin, you're a slave to sin. That is, you're stuck right in the midst of being one who sins and you can't get yourself out of it. The Apostle Paul then writes, um, no one is righteous, no one seeks God. He says, without a work of God in your life, he says that that no one really seeks him. Oh, we may seek stuff from him. Oh, we may seek, seek the stuff that we like about him. Oh, we may seek some image of him that we've created in our own minds. He said, but you don't really seek him so that you may yield your life to him and bow to him as God. In fact, he says, the natural mind that is the mind without God, the mind that hasn't been renewed by the Holy Spirit, the mind without God is hostile towards God. And then in a great summary statement in Ephesians chapter 2, that was Romans chapter 8, verse 7, by the way, in, Hebrew, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, he says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. He says they kill us, they separate us from the life that is in God, and we're separated from God because of our sin and because of our trespasses. And he says that's where we are. And there's a sense in which if you looked at, our, if you looked at yourself before Christ, if you look at someone apart from Christ, What you see is a fortress that's completely shut up and no one can get in and nobody can get out and God most especially is kept away. In fact, the way Paul puts it 
in Romans chapter 1 is like this. If you're quick, you can turn there. Romans 1, verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, naming, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And he says, what we do, very naturally speaking, is when we go outside, we should be able to look around and say, wow, God is great. And then we should bow down to him and yield our lives to him. But rather than do that, we build roofs so we won't have to really see. And we look around, not so much at what God has made, but images. And we look around, most especially at things that we've made, and we get all excited about that. I mean, we get all excited about the, the person who invented the light, light bulb, and we forget about the one who hung the sun. Right? Because the one who hung the sun is very dangerous. Because he's the very one who made us. And if he made us, it means he owns us. And if he owns us, it means he defines us. And if he defines us, then it means that, that we can only live the life that he's defined for us. And we'd rather live the life we define for ourselves. That's what Jesus said. They loved darkness rather than light. They didn't want to see what God had for them. They, we don't want to see what God has for us. We'd rather live in darkness, define it our own way. And that's the threat you see that God is. So we shut ourselves out, shut him out from us. And we shut ourselves in. That's the picture. The question is, how, how are those walls going to come down? We can't do it any more than Israel could take those walls down. We can't do it. And so God gives a way for those walls to come down. And his way is the cross of our Lord Jesus. Turn to 1 Corinthians and chapter 1, please. 1 Corinthians and chapter 1, verse 18. First Corinthians 1 and verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, God, the power of God, I'm sorry, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The apostle says, the word of Christ is folly. Just as weird, just as strange 
as walking around the city once a day for six days, walking around the city seven times, then blowing some trumpets and yelling. It appears just that strange to people. The way that all this is going to be fixed, the way that our problem with God is going to be fixed, is by sending this one who is going to die on a cross. That's the wisdom of God. That's the power of God. And you see, to us, that's foolishness and weakness. It's foolishness because how is this going to work? Someone coming and dying? You wouldn't think that. And how is this going to be strong and powerful? You wouldn't think that. He said, in fact, the Jews demanded a sign, and so this was a stumbling block to them. They, they demanded a sign from Jesus. They said, they said, pass our test. If you can pass our test, if you show us what we're looking for, then we'll believe in you. And you see, what they were looking for is someone to come and conquer the Romans and restore Israel to their political place. And what Jesus was doing was to come and really conquer the enemies of their soul and then restore them to God. That is to deal with their sin, which they denied, and restore them to God. And so Jesus said, okay, here's the sign I'm going to give you. I'm going to be dead for three days. Just like Jonah. Give me the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale, I'm going to be in the belly of the earth. And they said, doesn't pass our test. The Greeks looked for wisdom. And when they learned of the Messiah dying, the king dying, the triumphant one dying, they said, how could that be? That doesn't make any sense. Do you have another way? Do you have another philosophy? Is there something else that we can really think about here? And you say, it's foolishness. Has a tendency to be foolishness in the context of our world because in the context of our world, world people are thinking, uh, really, okay, if God will just tell me what he needs me to do to satisfy him, then I'll be able to do that because I'm competent and I'm self-sufficient and I can really please him. Or others say, really, it's not that important to please God. He, he created the world and then he kind of set it up and then he sort of left it and now we're left here to do the best we can with it. And others would say, well, you know, really, you don't even have to even think about God in that context. We can explain everything there is through natural causes. And so really, all we have to do is satisfy ourselves. That's what really makes sense. And then others say, but you know, truth is so culturally conditioned. It's, it's so based on our tradition and from our experience and all of that, that, that really, no one of us can say what's really what's really true. There have to be all kinds of ways, all, all kinds of ways to satisfy God. In fact, if you read two weeks ago in the Faith Forum, I think it's called in the Saturday paper, I don't read it every time, but I read it this time, and uh, here's what one pastor in our community said. He wrote, Born Again describes the transformational experiences, experience that lies at the heart of Christianity. Now that was a nice sentence, actually. Though if you had read what he written before, you'd go, I don't think he thinks about that the way I do. And then he proved it with these next lines. He said, all the world's great religions offer a similar path. The word Islam means in part to surrender, to surrender one's life to God by radically centering in God. Of course, what he doesn't say is that without this being born again, it's impossible to center your life on God and that Allah, as defined, is not God. Then he goes on to say at the heart of Buddhism... Uh, the Buddhist path is the notion of letting go. But of course the question is letting go of what and grabbing hold of what? Uh, Lao Tzu 
said, if you want to be reborn, let yourself die. That, of course, is nice. But just because you've let yourself die doesn't mean you can bring yourself back to life in what is real life. And then he goes on to say, thus, there are many paths to God. See, that makes much more sense, doesn't it, in the context of the world without Christ. Why one particular way? And, of course, the answer one particular way is because there's one particular problem and one particular God. The one particular problem is our sin shutting us up against God. That's the issue that has to be dealt with. And since we're shut up in it, we can't get out of it. So God in some way has to come and take care of it for us. And the dilemma that God faces, if I could put it reverently in that way, the dilemma that God faces is that how can he be just and pardon sinners? I mean, that's a real ethical issue. That's a real ethical problem. I mean, how can he be just and at the same time pardon those who've sinned against him, who are lawbreakers? Because if he pardons lawbreakers, it makes him unjust. And you see, the difficulty with us is that we've used life in a way that's contrary to the way that God prescribed it. Right? We've lived in a way that dishonors him, that dishonors how we're to live by his definition. So you know what justice means in that context? Justice means that he takes life. That we can't have life if we're going to live it in a way that dishonors him. If we're going to live it in a way which he has not defined for us to live. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. If we don't live life the way the creator is said to live life, then he takes life. And that's just. And that's right. So how are any to live? And so in God's wisdom, he comes with his plan. Who else could think of this? He says, I'll send one who is like you in every way, but never sins, and who's like you in any way, but because of who he is, he's worth all of you. And so he sends Jesus, his very own son, the one who's worth an infinite value. His life is worth us all. And so this very one comes and he lives without sin. So he doesn't deserve to die. He meets the favor of his father on our behalf for us. And then he takes our sin upon himself and dies so that we who believe in him can live. The Apostles' Creed this morning, we had that little expression that's very controversial in history. The expression that says, he descended into hell. Sometimes when churches make that confession, they leave it out. Just a little asterisk. And at the bottom of the asterisk it said, some say he descended into hell. Some people use the expression, he descended into Hades. Which may well be the intention of those who framed the Apostles' Creed. We don't know who wrote the Apostles' Creed. It wasn't the Apostles, but it reflects their teaching. Uh, we don't know who wrote it, but maybe what was simply meant there is that he was dead for three days, which is true. But when we say the expression, he descended into hell, you know my paranoia, because if you'll read the Apostles' Creed above it, in really small print, I give some explanations about what we mean about this. It's just my own little idiosyncrasies and all of that. I should get some help with that. But... Um, 
But uh, the expression he descended into hell means for us that, that, that this expression doesn't come in the Apostles' Creed necessarily chronologically or locationally, but simply as a summary statement to say when he suffered on the cross, he took our hell. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took it for us. All eternal punishment at that moment in time was cast upon this one who absorbed it all and paid it all. That's the wisdom of God. He solves his own dilemma about being just and the one who can justify those who are sinners. And at the same time, he enables you and me to be saved. And at that moment in time, for all who would believe in Jesus and for all who were faithful in the old covenant, walls came down. And it freed us. And being the little Rahabs that we are, if you didn't get the Rahab sermon, you can go hear how we're all prostitutes, but that's another day. Uh, we all scampered out free, saying yes. The walls came down, and now we're free. I have to stop. But I want to leave us there with that picture in your mind of your own testimony, of your own salvation. If you're a believer in Christ, then what happened to you was not foolishness, though that's how it appears to some. But it was the wisdom and power of God that there you were, there I was, shut up in my own sin, trying with all my might trying with all your might to keep him out. But in his graciousness, his wisdom and power, when Christ died, those walls came down for you and for me, and we're free to say yes. I believe. And when you think about the situation that happened in Jericho, if it really seems like a great miracle to you, and you're a believer in Christ. Look in the mirror. You and I are no less miracles. And if you say, oh man, I wish I'd have been there that day. That would have been really cool to see. Look in the mirror. Let's pray. Father, pray this picture haunts us in the best way stays with us as a reminder to us of what you've done for us in Christ Jesus that we may understand who we are and how we got to be who we are Father I have a sense that the Israelites on that day just sort of walked around going what are we doing but when they saw the walls came down, they realized what you were doing. Father, when we look at a cross, we wonder, what, what's all all about? But then, Father, when you experientially cause the walls to come down in our own minds and our own hearts, we realize, oh, yes, I see what you did. Father, may our faith be strong. May we worship deeply. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.